um, there's this concept in schema therapy, which is called limited reparenting, which is basically like the attachment trauma that you've had needs to be healed through, through the therapeutic relationship. And the therapist is actually meeting your needs in an appropriate way. You know, they're not holding you and rocking you from side to side. Maybe some are. So limited reparenting, meeting those attachment needs through the relationship, and then that experience can be taken to your other relationships. When you've got masking, like that, that's actually a response to attachment trauma, in my view. It's it's a trauma response, so is rejection sensitivity to internalized ableism. And so if you're masking in therapy, that's actually actively going against the um, therapeutic needs. So the number one aim, so this is something that I want to write about in my education for professionals, is your number one thing is if that if your client you are feeling like there's something there's blocking that or they're masking the main focus is on helping them feel comfortable so they don't have to mask welcome to princess in the p podcast a show where we talk about all things neurodiversity with those who know it best lived experience of course i'm your host annie crow and i'm an autistic adhder I started this podcast so I could share meaningful conversations that explore the lives of neurodivergent people like myself. We talk about everything from employment to healthcare, education, parenting, relationships, mental health and more, but all with a neurospicy lens. Before we kick off, I just wanted to add a quick content warning for little ears. This podcast will be discussing mental health issues and serious adult business. So chuck on your headphones and grab a cup of tea. And as Bluey likes to say, let's do this. Today's guest is our very first neurodivergent psychologist, the best kind of course, Dr. Joey Lawrence, whose pronouns are she and they, a rising TikTok star at nd underscore site, where she mixes their lived experience with their professional skills in a highly relatable way. So many truth bombs. Today is a bit more of a casual chat where two friends share their thoughts and feelings on navigating therapy and understanding neurodivergence. Dr. Joey is a clinical psychologist who, after years of practicing psychology, discovered she was, in fact, an autistic ADHDer. Yay! She talks about how misrepresented and stereotyped autism really was in their extensive studies and how she started digging deeper. Dr. Joey is currently shifting gears while unpacking their own neurodivergent identity and practicing my favorite skill, radical self-acceptance. Joey is one of my favorite people to share my special interest of psychology with, and we have a lot to say about it. Also, recently Joey has joined the board for the brand new not-for-profit Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia, or EDNA where she is using their lived experience and extensive professional skills to educate fellow healthcare providers on what neurodiversity-affirming care really looks like. This was recorded many weeks ago now while I had a cold, so please excuse the sound quality. Daycare bugs are the worst. 
Also, I wanted to talk about how the show is shifting towards becoming a more ND affirming platform. Firstly, I'm ditching consistency as it's a social construct made by and for neurotypicals. Rebel, I know. Secondly, I've got a podcast episode coming out soon where I'll be talking to a brilliant autistic human who isn't using her voice at the moment. So we did the entire interview via messages, which I'll be reading out. Might be dangerous as a dyslexic dysgraphic host, but we'll see. I've been wanting to try this for a while as non-speaking autists are commonly excluded from much of the neurodiversity dialogue. This guest isn't always non-speaking, but we thought we shouldn't let her current communication style stop us from having a chat with you all. And I try to be as accessible as possible. And finally, I'm currently wearing the hats of host, producer, coordinator, marketer, and all that jazz, figuring it out as I go. I hope I can get some professional help. Don't worry, I already have that kind that you're thinking of for editing and getting some transcripts up soon. Before we kick off, I wanted to share some really exciting news that we've recently surpassed 500 downloads, barely a month into going live. And I found this news out on Autistic Pride Day, which was the icing on the cake. Thank you to all you beautiful humans who put up with my voice and support the show. It's a pleasure for me to talk to all these incredible humans, but to share it with you and hear so many amazing stories about your own neurodivergent awakening and pride just fills my heart with joy. Anyway, I think you're going to really enjoy this one. We talk about everything from masking to monotropism, rejection sensitivity, trauma, and more. It's a jam-packed episode with all the feels. So enjoy! Hello, Dr. Joey. Welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you for coming on. It's great to have you here. I thought we could start with you letting us know how you found out about your own neurodivergence. I can't actually really remember the first time um, I came across anything to do with it. Um, the ADHD, so I'm diagnosed with yep. ADHD and I'm going through the autism stuff, but I'm pretty much like... You know, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. that's a thing. And I don't... I, I, I do recall there was this presentation I was doing at work one day and I was like really, really like, interested in ADHD. I sat there, like I came to work early. I like made this whole thing. And then I said to everyone, we're doing this, you know, in our team meeting. And I just like info dumped on everyone about ADHD. And they were like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and I like, I didn't connect the dots. And then, yeah, then I connected the dots when I'm like, why am I so, yeah. Was it in that presentation, like, that you put it together? <laughs> During, I'm like, oh, my God, like, reading the criteria. No. This is me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was It was sort of like, it, it's strange, actually, because I think my understanding of my neurodivergent, like, it's come in chunks. So I'm like, mm. yeah, no, nah. it's like back and forth, back and forth. And then, like, yep. the kind of part that's like, yes, grows. Um, so it was maybe there a little bit, but. It was only until maybe a couple months after I actually got diagnosed with ADHD that I was like, yeah, 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 I am. ADHD. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common experience for us women as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and and the other thing is, um, you know, uh, being that you're, you know, in the profession that does said diagnosing, um, it doesn't really surprise me at all. Like, if anyone's thinking you know, what, as if psychologists wouldn't know, I think, I mean, that's one of the reasons I've even created this show is that they don't. Most of them really don't because I actually started a psych degree for fun after I was diagnosed in an effort to understand my own neurodivergence. And I 
quit immediately because <laughs> the first subject, I don't know if it was the first subject, but one of the first subjects had a big chunk on autism and it was horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so ableist and so stereotyped and male presentation. I was just like, why would I pay to do a degree that's not going to give me anything mm-hmm. about myself? You know, <laughs> um, so I, I guess for listeners who don't know that it's actually really common for psychologists not to understand how ADHD and autism present in women. It's actually quite rare to find ones that get it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I studied psychology for 10 years um, and have worked clinically for maybe six mm-hmm. and it was still very much a surprise to me that I... Not surprising to <laughs> me that that's a surprise to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It? So that level of... But when I look back to what I learned, and I mean, you were lucky enough to have this other view of autism. I, like the way I saw autism, the what, what I learned about it yeah. was so far from my experience. I would never see myself in that. Neither. And um, yeah. So, and, and I look back and I don't know if I told you about this, but there have been lots of times in my career where like I was in um, more of a trainee role yeah. and somebody, I would actually assess them and like, I just cringe so much that I didn't diagnose them. And like, these are things I think I have to work through in therapy seriously, because I'm like, where is that person now? Like, that's actually so harmful to them. And they were distraught as well. So I'm sorry oh, to these people, no. really. Um, and I totally get that. We have so yeah. much internalized ableism. And when you're trained in that sort of way, like how could you not be anything but that? You know, I think if you were diagnosing someone today, it would be very different. But, oh, yeah. you know, that was pre your neurodivergence awakening. So I, it doesn't surprise me at all. And please don't feel bad because <laughs> you are absolutely not alone in doing that mm. and no ill intent was there. Yeah. I don't know. I sort of, the way it makes me feel is like I was, this is very dramatic, but like I was under hostage and like made to do things that <laughs> I sort of felt on a level was wrong, but I didn't know how to articulate it. Cause I actually did feel like it was wrong and I couldn't stop thinking. And I was like, why just, why is this so, why am I thinking about this so much? And I look back and I'm like, Oh, I was missing something. I was missing mm. like so many times. Yeah. And then it was only until I, I had a client who's autistic although a lot of my clients were autistic, I ended up diagnosing them after I figured all this out. And so I'm like, I'm going to learn about autism and watch this TED Talk thing about um, neurodiversity or something. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, there are a lot of autistic people around. Uh, Why would they be around still if it wasn't something that was like selected for or valued in like evolutionary history? And it's just like made heaps of sense to me. Yes. I just read an article tonight that was... Uh, it was some study published that was pr- basically proved that autism is not caused by poor gut health and actually poor gut health is usually caused by being autistic because we tend to have not the greatest diets or quite restrictive repetitive eating and I was reading it but just thinking why are we wasting our time on this like that's already been proven can you please research something that's actually going to help us live better lives <laughs> And not try and mm. cure us because we're not curable. It's we're just different. It's like trying to cure a race or gender. Oh, that annoys me so much. Yeah, I don't know why this still goes on. Like I actually have this thing in my mind. Like I have just been fully into the neuroaffirming approach. Me too. I just like think that's that's the way. 
But yes, I would like, I think the research is turning into this way. Like there's, there's more stuff on like masking and yes, absolutely. Um, like a double empathy problem yep. and um, things like that. So I think that's positive, but yes, I, I agree that there's some, um, some bodies that are maybe not progressing in the way that autistic people are asking for. Agreed. I don't know about yourself, but I really struggle with emotional things to the extent where I can hardly even watch like um, TV. Uh, yep. Ads make me cry. Me in the news. The news, I had to like, the, I, okay, there's certain things I ban from conversation because I like literally won't be able to regulate if I hear about Same. them. It's like, no, no, I can't. <sighs> so nice to hear I'm not alone. <laughs> it's the hyper empathy is intense. And so I, lit- I, I kind of feel like it's happening to me. And when I hear this stuff, it's like I can feel that. On such a deep level. So it's it's hard. It's hard. And it's hard when I'm like trying to communicate and be like um, help health professionals who it's just, it's just a different way to understand things and not getting that response because that dilutes your message. And I totally get it. I figured out how to watch the news without getting too affected by it. It's taken me years uh-huh. like over a decade I watched the really short three minute summary I have an Alexa you know executive function I watch it in the morning I have like the little video one in the kitchen and I watch the news summary and it's just enough to hit me the headlines and be kept up to date but not enough that it ever gets me too far into any of the very emotional topics yeah. but it's so hard yeah. because I want to stay on top of the news but it's really draining and we only have so many spoons in a day you know yeah I I, I don't know if that would like I would ever have a strategy for that but anyway I my strategy right now is but is burning, banning the news <laughs> and just going for my partner he's pretty much my executive functions anyway oh you're so lucky yeah I wanted to ask from your professional experience, how do psychologists decide what therapy type to use? Like, is it, mm-hmm. you know, do some of them specialize in certain type? For instance, I could be a psychologist that does CBT or another one that does EMDR, or do they all get taught the same and sort of mix it up or case by case basis? What's What do you find that you've done and I guess professionals that you've worked with have done just from like an outsider newbie point of view? Because obviously I've had a lot of therapy, but, you know, it's always been different. I just wonder, like for those listening that maybe haven't done therapy, what to expect and how to know, you know, who to see and what they specialize in. Mm, There's so many therapies. So there's a lot that influences that, like from the uni you go to, certain unis have different, like certain um, therapies that they emphasize to your supervisor. Like I've had supervisors who are like really into like psychodynamic therapy and some that are really CBT. So kind of depends on that. Um, but eventually you'll get to a point as a psych where you go towards things that more make sense for you and that you can operate in. Unfortunately for me, <laughs> I have this desire for internal coherence and there's not that in therapy. It's one of the biggest issues for me where I will go, you know, I'll learn one therapy and I'll go, okay, okay, okay. But mm, no, it's just, it doesn't. doesn't feel right. Yeah. And then I do another. And that's just been my whole career, really. Yeah, yeah. It caused a lot of distress for me, like like the communication and everything like that. But have you heard of the, mono, oh, you probably have like the mono, monotropism theory of autism? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's kind of like that. Oh, but our listeners probably haven't. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll explain it after the therapy thing. So what happened with me is I needed to look for an underlying model of therapy. For me, it's like the sort of social contextual stuff. So social constructivism, how we view mental health and that. 
and common factors theory, which is the idea that there are like what makes therapy work? What are the ingredients that actually uh, lead to outcomes for people? And that it actually shows that there's not one therapy that, you know, it more depends on the therapeutic relationship. So anyway, <laughs> try explaining that to a client. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Fair. Um, if you go to a therapist. It's complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the mo- like people focus on like modalities. Like I do this, I do that, I do this. But it's like, do you connect with them? Yeah. Do you trust them? Do you feel like afraid to tell them stuff? Yeah. Because like if you do, it's do not Do you feel judged? Work. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, a big yeah. one for me. My first therapist, I stayed with her for three years, which was looking back so silly, but at the time I had nothing to compare it to. And so I just thought I was the thing that wasn't working, not her. And yeah, we mostly did CBT with a little bit of ACT, but acceptance and commitment therapy. I keep using acronyms. I felt very judged by her. And I, I don't necessarily think that she was judging me, but what I guess my point is, is that I didn't feel safe. And I think everyone needs to feel safe in therapy, but if you're autistic and ADHD, you need to feel like way safer because especially if you're like us and you mask a lot because you're so used to putting on a front to the world because you've just been knocked back so many times, you know, rejection, sensitivity and everything that if you don't feel 110% safe, there's no point. And it's hard Mm -hmm. because you don't walk into a therapist and know that you feel safe straight away. I've come down years later and tried a few therapies and few therapists and I finally have ones that I do feel safe with, but it took me a few months of seeing them to really truly open up and to trust them. But I guess reflecting on my therapy journey, I think trust is one of the biggest things regardless of therapy modality, even though I I like to criticize CBT. (laughs) (laughs) CBT has its place, its underlying theory, but it's just how it's applied. I talk to a lot of people about this actually online because I'm in a lot of forums and people like get therapy and you're like all right okay where do I find one how do I find one that doesn't make me feel worse you know it happens I just want to acknowledge that you know and what I say is like um, there's this concept in schema therapy which is called limited reparenting which is basically like the attachment trauma that you've had um, needs to be healed through, through the therapeutic relationship and the therapist is actually meeting your needs in an appropriate way that you know they're not holding you and rocking you from side to side <laughs> maybe some are but you, that those needs are sort of so limited reparenting meeting those attachment needs through the relationship and then that experience can be taken to your other relationships and when you look at um when you look at masking like that that's actually a response to attachment trauma in that's my so view. true it's it's a trauma response so is rejection sensitivity to internalized ableism and so if you're masking in therapy that's actually actively going against the um, therapeutic Yeah, needs. that makes sense. So the number one aim, so this is something that I want to write about in my education for professionals, is your number one thing is if that if your client, you are feeling like there's something there, it's blocking that or they're masking, the main focus is on helping them feel comfortable so they don't have to mask. And that will, yeah, that might take a year. I've worked with some clients, it's literally yeah, been a year. Yeah, that's true. And also I guess to be aware enough and professional enough to also recognize when maybe you aren't a good fit because it's so much harder for the client to know that especially if they're new to therapy like I was you know if they're not making that much progress and you have given it a good hard go of a few months or even that Mm -hmm. I guess the 12 month mark is probably a kicker to to be like okay maybe they need someone else I think that's probably another thing I really wish Mm -hmm. my my first therapist had done that to be honest I was very committed to that therapy and it was horrible. 
Yeah. I think as part of that as well is this, what can happen with not being diagnosed is not knowing what our needs are and like, how do we, Mm. we're just sort of like very passive recipients of care. So how do we have that voice to be like, this doesn't feel right. This isn't helping when you just think you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing, I don't know if you find this, but you know, autism can look a lot like narcissism. When I first did therapy, she didn't say I was a narcissist, but in the CBT that we did, it kind of came, like, I felt as if she was trying to say, like, I cared too much about others' opinions. But then when I looked into narcissism, it didn't fit. Like, I didn't have the same motivations, even though maybe the behavior looked similar. Yes. Yeah. So I, I would, like, some people who are autistic can be narcissistic. Like, True. Like people who are autistic can be anything, right? Exactly. Is, you know. It's a different thing. But, <laughs> like, autism literally means selfism. Yeah, auto one. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, a frame of viewing the world through like a very individualized lens. So of course you're going to be like, how does that, like, I don't know, I, being autistic and trying to understand like how other people see things. It's very hard. It's like <laughs> not something that I'm good at. Yeah. So how do people <laughs> not know I've this? <laughs> I know, right. But yeah, yeah, it's not something you're doing because you think you're better than other people. No. It's just like it's how your brain works. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And it's funny like how subtle it can be as well. Like even recently – uh, we've had a, a slew of illnesses since my toddler started daycare. So it's been like a fun three months. And my husband was sick the other day and I wasn't. And he's not very overt at showing he's ill. I guess he's just a little bit more avoidant of housework, maybe, <laughs> which is fine. Like we're already both pretty demand avoidant. But he didn't like look really sick. Whereas when I'm sick, I'm like, oh, like really whingy. Woe is me. And so I just didn't think he was that sick. And he kept telling me he wasn't well, but he didn't seem it. Uh And it was really hard for me to think just because he doesn't look like I look when I'm sick doesn't mean it's not bad. Anyway, I, you know, serves me right. I then caught what what he had that my son gave him than me. And it was horrible. One way to know. True, true empathy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> literally right? oh. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm so sick. And by then he was feeling better. He's like, I know, right? And I'm like, oh, is this how you were? He's like, yes, I told you. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't seem that sick. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. But mm-hmm. I, I do, I find sometimes it's hard when people don't behave similarly to me to understand where their head's at. Yes. It, um, well, why would you? I don't know. I don't. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I, I am all for like, I, I said, I had a conversation with my partner today. I was just going on and on and on about all the random things I talk about. And he's just like, oh my God, shut up. And <laughs> I'm like, I'm constantly thinking like, am I annoying him? How much do I say? Like this internal thing. Yeah, me too. And I'm like, can you just tell me if I'm annoying you? That would be helpful. Because it's just like too much, it's just too much like pressure on myself to internalize all these different levels of conversation. I'm going to have a meltdown if I continue with this. Like I'm going to burn out. I just can't. So I'm like, just tell me. And if you don't tell me, you haven't told me. Absolutely. I don't know if that's rude. (laughs) No, that's actually really helpful. And I kind of do the same with my partner. Seriously. Otherwise you're just second guessing it all the time. Yeah. So with my husband, he's very much... Like he will just tell me if he's annoyed at me or anything at me because then I don't ever have to be on guard around him. And it's actually really helpful because I truly like now that we're very practiced at it Mm -hmm. and good at it, I don't ever feel like I need to second guess his behavior. He's very much upfront about his own needs and he's very good at helping me not have to second guess him. 
so I it just feels like I'm I'm absolutely not masking at home anymore which is so nice yeah I um think that that's it's really tricky (laughs) to get to that point because you have to sort of like yeah it's quite an unusual thing when people can just be direct with one another and not have to read into their behavior yeah as much as I would like that to just be every single interaction I've ever had same why can't that be the norm Well, I'm trying to make it my norm. Like at the moment, I'm just like, true, because I I burnt out recently and it's some of these things, like just these little things that I have to put mental energy into. Mm -hmm. That's really, it's masking really. Absolutely. And I'm like, well, there's actually people who who do have direct communication and how about I just kind of try to spend more time around those people and then for the indirect people, just explain to them, hey, when you did this, this is, you know, like yeah, all those yeah, communication yeah. skills that I find really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know, ask me in five years. <laughs> no, 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 this is helpful because I, so I went to an all-girls school um, for the first six months of high school mm-hmm. and I specifically chose this school because at the end of primary school was when, you know, girls and boys were starting to get interested in each other and that changed the playground dynamics and the girls were getting a little clickier. Mm-hmm. And so I was finishing up primary school and everyone was choosing which high schools to go to. And I was like, uh, I want to go back to how it used to be before everyone cared about who was, who liked who and who kissed who in the playground. So, you know, my brain was like, oh, autistic logic. (laughs) I'm going to, I didn't know I was autistic, but I was like, I'll go to all girls school. Terrible decision. Really, really bad decision. I was always more friends with guys at school. Um, I did have girlfriends, but they were usually only one or two of them. Mm. I was never in like a big girl group for very long because it was just really clicky. And literally within the first month of me being at this old girl school, there were two cat fights in the quad and like it was next level bitchiness, which blows my mind because there were no boys to fight over, but clearly boys weren't the problem. If anything, I feel like being around boys made the girls behave more. Mm. <laughs> like... I, I don't know, this is super stereotyping and I know friends that went to all-girls schools that loved it and apparently it does get better. Like the older you get in high school at the all-girls schools, you become really close and you get over that, I don't know, hump of hormones or whatever it is that does that. But I just, yeah, I really struggled and I couldn't quite comprehend why. But I guess mm. it kind of goes to that similar story of me worrying about how, what my mum thinks of me because in female dynamics – There's so much more subtlety in communication. You know, you can have a girlfriend say, I I don't mind that you were late, but she's actually really pissed off at you and then goes and tells your other friends Mm. that you're a, you know, jerk or whatever. And all of a sudden she's giving you the silent treatment or, you know, I mean, I don't even befriend people like this anymore. I've like cleansed my life of that type of person. But that is very much a common thing for women. And I think it's something that as an autistic woman, we are actually not terrible at the social dynamics because we've had to learn that nuance, Mm -hmm. whether it's from a logical, analytical way rather than an intuitive way, or at least that's how I view how I've done it. Yeah, same. But at the same time, it's still, we still get caught out quite a bit and it eats away at us because most of the time it's for things that we really didn't mean, right? And, you know, we think we're okay with someone and then all of a sudden it comes back on the grapevine that they think we're horrible. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it's, it's rough. Oh, it's really hard for me. I think the social side of things is something that I don't really understand so much of myself yet because my whole life I thought I was like, I thought I was all right, but then 
I look back and I'm like, well, I, I did use like a lot of alcohol yeah. to cope and also being friends with boys. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to like professionally understand how to social by doing a degree in psychology and like literally train myself in like every single nuance. So I don't know how much is me, how much is the mask. Like I just, it's all a mess. And now like every time I have a social thing, I'm like watching my own brain. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like obsessing about this and that. Like I don't even notice. It's it's hard oh, to unpack. It's so crazy. I don't even know. Yeah. Oh, I feel you. I feel you. I didn't even do a psych degree and I'm like that. So that must be an, an extra level of mm-hmm. difficult to yeah. understand. Yeah. And especially because you're still in throes of diagnosis. Uh-huh. Like I'm a few years down the track now. And honestly, it took me two years after being diagnosed to really start wrapping my head around what it meant and reflecting on my whole, you know, 30 years of not knowing. (laughs) Bit of a delayed one. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, I just, well, it was more of a, you know, like for me, I think I have a bit of a a less common story in the sense that, you know, a lot of women who are both autistic and ADHD get diagnosed ADHD and then take another few years to either work out they're autistic or get a diagnosis from what I hear. But for me, I went in to see the psychiatrist knowing full well I had ADHD. I had just come across it after I was diagnosed with PTSD because there's quite an overlap in symptoms and went down the rabbit hole of ADHD in women and was like, oh my God, this explains everything. And so I thought I was all prepared. And then I walked out with the autism diagnosis and I had not looked into that at all. And he gave me like a comic to look at. It wasn't really badly stereotyped, but it was also, I didn't really link, it didn't feel right to me. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll go research this. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. And then obviously I did and was like, oh wow, how did I miss this? Because especially because it's so co-occurring with ADHD, But uh, I mean, back then I wasn't reading many like research papers and stuff. I'd go to sources like attitude.com and stuff and they don't like to bring up Mm. the autism connection that much. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I was just mind blown that I had autism. I'm like, no, no, that's I didn't even I literally didn't even have a stereotype to compare it to. I've had no one in my life was autistic that I knew of. I just had no idea. And so Mm. my first dive into the research was into the scientific side of it which is much more ableist and stereotyped and it took me quite a while to break into the neurodivergent community Mm. and that was really I think what took me so long to be honest and hopefully that means that you and friends of mine who are just learning they're autistic have a a quicker processing period yeah Yeah. definitely Um, but for me the first six months especially was quite horrible and I think it is common for from what I hear everyone explains the late diagnosis especially of autism as a roller coaster because you get such relief and such joy at understanding yourself finally and having answers that you've been seeking forever but at the same time such grief for having to reprocess your life and think about how it could have been different and all of that so I mean I had all of that but I think a lot of it to be honest was to do with the fact that I didn't have that neuro affirming care and access to information that is basically why like we do what we do right that's what we want people to have so that they can one recognize it in themselves earlier and two when they do it's not such a emotional roller coaster it's like so many things have to line up in order to go through and I swear if I like wrote down all the stages of like pre-diagnosis diagnosis and like there's no guarantee that even those things will go smoothly it's just a mental, this crazy roller coaster yep. is an understatement, 
right now I'm just like really angry yeah <laughs> but I I think I completely like go through your process as well like because when I I I don't even think I knew women could have autism. I don't. I don't know. I just never thought about it. Neither. And when I heard it, I was like, "Huh?" Like I was so confused. Yeah. And I was like, "But so some like I heard the first thing apart from the TED talk was like a podcast about autism. Yeah. And again, it was for my client. Mm-hmm. And the woman was talking about um, how she has autism. I'm like, "Oh, she speaks really well," which is like so crazy. And I'm like, yeah. "She speaks well, therefore she you know." Yeah, yeah, that's weird. Yeah. It doesn't add up. Oh, that's and what the they teach is, it at you know psychology. <laughs> I, I've seen it. <laughs> oh, some of the most articulate people are are autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's this, if they're talking about something they're interested in, don't ask me about random things I don't care about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But so, and then, so I had that model and then, yeah, it just kind of started clicking and it was actually my psychologist because she has a podcast, amazing podcast, um, The Neurodivergent Woman. So good. And um, I was listening to that and I'm like, she was talking about ADHD and burnout. So I'm like, oh, I should talk to her. Hey. The first time I saw her, she's like, I think you're an autistic burnout. I'm like, huh? What? Yeah. Like, so I'm looking back now at my ADHD list to my psychiatrist mm-hmm. and it's like, sensory stimulation question mark grocery shopping very tiring need a nap after biggest breakdowns after this <laughs> hypersensitivities scraping sounds certain sounds eating me too me too the sound of a spoon mixing a drink angers me migraines <laughs> i don't know a lot of sounds anger me i definitely have the misophonia thing i think that's interesting that you say that because and it's something i want to draw attention to because <laughs> i think a lot of people when they think sensory sensitivities they don't like it, it's talked about in quite a stereotyped way for me my sensory issues uh, are quite severe but they fluctuate depending on like my environment my stress levels how much I've slept all of that jazz Mm -hmm. but for me I have like a visceral anger and irritation Mm. it's not so much necessarily painful I mean sometimes it is and I I just don't know how to explain it but I I think it's something that's important to say because some people don't think they have sensory issues when they do just because of how it is talked about you know what I mean yeah the things like I was learning about autism and I'm like do you hate tags do you have are you really picky with your food which I'm not that picky and it's like totally different yeah I think it's because we don't really understand like we don't learn about sensory processing it's such a such a complex area like I have visual overstimulation and I never knew I just feel bad all the time I never even knew I thought it was normal and it was only until my sensory issues were addressed I'm like whoa I don't I don't feel horrible yeah (laughs) so I just felt horrible all the time right oh yeah I love how we have to be better before we realize how bad we were (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm like I don't know why I get migraines oh the migraines Migraines was, I would have them all the time. And the doctor's like, I don't know. It's very, very obvious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway. Oh, that's rough. Speaking of doctors, so you know how sensory issues uh, can be introception and extraception. So for listeners, introception is like hunger signals, um, pain, how you experience pain, urgency to go to the toilet that sort of thing. And extraception is like sensitivity to input. So it's really bright or it's really loud, that type of thing. And Mm -hmm. you can be hypo or hyper and all of those things. And for me, uh, I have, I have some introception issues that took me so long to realize, even though looking back at my history, they're so obvious, but a lot of ADHDers have issues with eating 
um, because they don't have, well, I mean, a lot of the time it's distractibility, right? If you hyper-focus, you forget you're hungry. You're not focusing on your hunger because you're into mm-hmm. whatever you're into. But at the same time, you can also have that issue without the distractibility where you're just not getting the hunger signals correctly. So you forget to eat because there's no signal coming until mm-hmm. you're starving. <laughs> and then you overeat because your satiation doesn't come Mm. at the right time either or because you've left it too long and blah, blah, blah. It's like a flow on. Um, But sensory, yeah, introception I find is such a fascinating topic for pain and doctors because I have hypersensitivity to pain and my autistic cousin is hyposensitive to pain and we both have had equally traumatic experiences in the health system because of that difference in pain response because we never look like textbook patients and so doctors won't believe me because I am that it's like I look like a drama queen who's faking it because I'm like usually just crying more than I should or I can't pinpoint where the pain is I just know there's pain so I I almost got sent home with a appendix that was about to burst because they didn't believe me (laughs) Um, luckily my mum was very persistent and equally my cousin was almost sent home about to give birth to her second child. The midwife said, um, you know, you don't have a sweaty upper lip, so you can't be close, go home. (laughs) She walked out the hospital and like, I'm like, I need to push. And the baby was born like within 10 minutes. (laughs) So I think this is important in healthcare. And that's why I bring it up when you like saying doctor made me think of that. Um, because I've had such traumatic experiences with doctors. And I mean, I'm probably a bit of a weirdo because I've had way more experiences than the average person because I was in a car crash at 23 and because I have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome that I didn't know until after I was diagnosed autistic. But at the same time, I'm sure a lot of autistic people could relate to having poor interactions with doctors because they don't show up as typical patients or they can't explain Mm. their symptoms as easily or as correctly as they should anyway that's definitely been my experience yeah well I'm just thinking like um this is random but I'm sure I promise it makes sense I believe Uh, I was doing my my business proposal stuff today I was like thinking about how I'm gonna help people and I was like should I have it to do something to do with the brain but I think that's actually I think we need to focus a little bit more on like the whole body. Like um, somebody who's autistic, it's like, it's like everything about their brain and their body in the, those interactions could, could be quite different. So like in my, in my profession, there's so many things that are misinterpreted, like down to like feelings, emotions, everything like yes. that. It's like every single thing is like, you have to like throw out the rule book. So what, that wouldn't be any different to like anything else. Um, so true. Any other setting, like pain and, symptoms I think you're on the money because technically all of those feelings in our body is the brain still um in terms of you know interpreting them and processing them so that does make sense but you're so right and the other thing that you remind me of there is um you know emotions and processing and Mm -hmm. in my first year of therapy my psychologist would say like you know where do you feel that (laughs) I was like what (laughs) And she sort of ex- like gave me an example of like, is it in your chest or like, you know, your your shoulders? And I was like, uh, 
Yeah, chest. <laughs> I <laughs> totally one. made it up because I uh, I can't feel that anywhere. It's an intellect. It's like a logical feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and now I realize that I have alexithymia. <laughs> yeah. Oh, such an interesting area, alexithymia. Again, yeah. another thing that it's like very different to what people like what you look up. Yes, agreed. I think I might have it too. I don't know. I just maybe. I don't know. I I thought I understood emotions. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is about everything with psychology Mm. is that the initial words never actually fully explain it. Like PDA, uh, pathological demand avoidance. Oh, yes. I want to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I'm very fresh into researching this, so I'm Mm -hmm. not super confident about it yet. But initially looking into it, I dismissed it and thought, no, that's not me. And the more I look into it and listen to the experts and the people that I think are experts, you know, the, the true lived experience experts like, you know, Christy Forbes is a good one. Um, she's an Aussie or Harry Thompson in the UK mm-hmm. wrote a great book on it and has been on some podcasts. If anyone wants to look up those people, I'm starting to realize that I'm very demand avoidant, but the way it shows is not typical demand avoidance, which is very much like you look very stubborn and you're non-compliant. Um, I'm demand avoidant, but in a very avoidant way. Uh, and I don't know if that makes sense. But what I'm trying to say is I will not outwardly defy things, but I will really sneakily avoid in any way I have to do. Even, And it sounds bad because, you know, I will literally lie about stuff, you know, like, oh, you know, I don't want to go to see a friend or something because for a thousand reasons. <laughs> um I'm just not up to it that day and I'll be like, oh, I'm sick or something came up, but it didn't. But people don't want to know that because then it's like you're a jerk, <laughs> right? Um, and that's not even a good example. The one, the example I love that Harry, I think it's Harry Thompson gives is about he was at a, a camp and mm-hmm. he loves playing the guitar and he plays it in public all the time, no issue. And someone in the in the the at the campfire said to him, oh, go get your guitar, play us some songs. And he went into the back room, into the cabin and literally broke the strings of his guitar (laughs) and was like, oh, no, they're broken, I can't play, and immediately regretted it. But, like, there's such – demand avoidance is so much more subtle and nuanced than, I mean, as as all psychology things are, than it first looks. Yeah, it's such such an interesting – like, okay, this is probably a bit of an issue for anything we talk about because um, <laughs> I just think so deeply about things. Like, I'll be just staring off into the distance. My partner's like, are you all right? I'm like, I'm just thinking about PDA. I'll just be thinking about PDA. Oh, my God, part. I do that all the time. Do you? <laughs> like, trying to, like, figure – because, yeah. And so yep. it's it's really intriguing to me because – so basically what I've been doing with every single thing I've learned about neurodivergent symptoms, traits, whatever, I kind of try to reframe it to see if it sort of fits in a way that's like – you're not just being an a-hole. Yes. <laughs> because that's how I, I feel think. like you should title a book that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very long you're title. You're not just being a-hole. <laughs> you're not an a-hole, okay? <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. But don't let me tell you that because you won't agree. No. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I think it's like if you – so one of like behaviorism, you have like ABA and that's like triggering stuff. But like actual behaviorism, yes. when done right, you sort of look at – Okay, well, what what is it that what need is that person meeting for like every single thing that they do, and if it's like that PDA, which PDA really is describing a behavior, a response, True. you know, not a underlying cognitive 
mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what's missing from a lot of these things, this behavior. So it's like, well, if somebody's telling you what to do in a way that doesn't make sense to me, I'm not going to do it because, like, why? I don't understand it. Like, you know, I'm not just being stubborn for the heck of it. If someone is like, hey, let's, like, do a podcast about autism and, you know, this is what we're going to talk about, I'm like, yeah, let's do that, you know. So anyway, (laughs) yeah, I get too drawn into it, but I just question everything. No, no, I totally get what you're saying. And I completely agree. I think that, I mean, that's a big issue with, you know, why we're, why women are diagnosed so late is that we don't behave typically. Uh, and so much of psychology research and diagnosis is formed off uh, observation. And if you observed me, mm-hmm. You most like as as an expert in autism, I doubt that they'd be able to tell quickly anyway that I was autistic because my behavior is very neurotypical because I've learnt to do things that are unnatural to me because they get a better response mm-hmm. from people. And, it, and most of it's very subconscious. Like it's not like I grew up and was like, oh, I really can't act like this. It was, you know, every day you have constant little experiences where you know certain things go wrong and then you learn. And 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 for me, I don't know about you, but I'm very, very good with patterns. So patterns of behavior, patterns of observation. So for me, I think my masking very naturally occurred when I would see mm. how people responded to me, friends, family, whatever, teachers, and I'd very quickly – learn what got a good response and what got a bad response which is basically like what masking is right is that you're putting up that behavior that you know will be a good response even though maybe the behaviors that would get a bad response aren't necessarily actually bad it's the interpretation of them that's the bad thing and I think that's so important because until we start to break down that morality around behavior and communication, then you've got a real issue of you're pointing the finger and it's not mm-hmm. getting pointed in the right direction. Not saying it should be pointed the other way. I'm just saying it shouldn't be pointed at all. Let's just acknowledge that we have fundamentally different mm-hmm. ways to think and communicate. My experience of autism is so internal. There is no look of autism you can't tell a person is autistic by looking at them. That's just how it is, you know? Yes. Yes to everything. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really hard for people to understand that you can be presenting neurotypical and not even know that you're doing that. Yes, I think that is really hard. Yeah, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around that. This is why I think that neurodivergent psychologists are very, very good. I do too. Because second, yeah. (laughs) That is like, that's f- the skills you need to be a psychologist is like fine tuned throughout your whole life, like picking yeah. up on people's states and reactions. Yeah. And this whole idea of empathy is just complete, you know, wrong because it's like, yeah. I, I've thought about this a lot. So I'm like, you know, I am, I'm really good at like fitting with like all my clients because I'm like, trying, you know, I, I have that re- well refined skill of like picking up and like molding myself to what they need. But I don't want that to come across as like being manipulative. Yeah, or inauthentic. Yeah, it's still like that's the authentic for me in that situation. Yeah, yeah. But it does take a toll. So I think yes. if you're a neurodivergent psychologist, you're going to burn out. Yeah, you need – no, absolutely. You need to put in some extra boundaries to protect yourself. Mm. Absolutely. What are neurodivergent people really bad at? Boundaries. Yeah. Because <laughs> you don't know what you need. It's Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a recipe for, for burnout. Absolutely. No, I've I've been lucky enough to talk to a few neurodivergent psychologists through this work mm. and um, 
and some of the other stuff I do and I just am blown away at their level of expertise and their ability to articulate it and really figure out how minds work it's it's just it's beautiful like one of my I have two therapists Mm. I say that I'm special (laughs) (laughs) um well yeah one of my therapists is uh is neurodivergent and I actually only found out like officially recently and I've been seeing her for like three years I think and I always suspected, but I mean, you're not really supposed to say to your therapist, are you autistic? <laughs> um, I say it, say it, yeah. definitely. Well, I know, I wish I had, because now like she just out and ke- like mentioned it the other day in, in passing and I totally didn't react because I was like, oh yes, but equally like pretending like, yeah, yeah, I knew that <laughs> totally. Um, but she's, and, and my other therapist who's, who's not autistic, she has social anxiety. So I don't even necessarily think I, I mm. to be honest I think if you have any kind of uh, neuro difference I think that's an asset as a psychologist because you've had to do the work yeah. Yeah, to understand absolutely. your own mind and how others work and how you differentiate I, I think that's such a skill and and from my own experience of seeing many therapists my absolute favorite ones that have made such a profound impact on my own journey have been neurodivergent and I think that might be why I mean what do I know but yeah it's definitely why no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally <Yes>. totally <laughs> Can I talk about things that I, so I made this little list of like, it's called my tick of approval list for things that I'm like all for. Yeah. What's, what's the next topic? This is really random. Let's just go through it. Okay. TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> TikTok, the app. I love it. I approve of it. Like I, this is really random, but just like. Oh my God. Alana's making me get onto that. <laughs> you Not you too. Do it. No, seriously. I have got an account now after my episode with Alana. <laughs> I, I found your account and I'm following you. <laughs> but okay. To elaborate a lot of psychology, well, some of them are like, you're just watching TikTok. That's why you think you have ADHD. That's why. But that is, and that's right most of the time. <laughs> yeah. It's, nobody is like watching one video and they're like, I have ADHD. Well, maybe, but doubtful. usually it's just like hours and hours and hours. Yeah. So TikTok, definitely, it's like therapy. Agreed. I think Instagram's not that far behind it as an Insta fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good resources on but that. But I, I have heard TikTok is the place <laughs> to go for neurodivergent videos. I love how you're like, but Insta. I know. Don't forget Instagram. Here I am still struggling struggling to use Twitter after all these years. Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna start a TikTok and Insta. Yeah, you should. I'll follow you. I follow Alana. That's all. <laughs> um, walking during therapy. Let's go for a walk. Because oh, some people, um, when they're moving, moving, they can talk. When they're not moving, they can't talk. I mean, that's like a stim, yeah. right? It's relaxing. Well, for some, I must say there are periods where I definitely wouldn't have done that, but that was when I had chronic pain and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think a, an interesting thing to mention, and this is something that I kind of want to, I like to caveat neuroaffirming recommendations mm-hmm. with is, and I'm sure you'd agree because, I mean, we've talked about this stuff, but I just think it's important for people to listen to know that I think the point of our recommendations is really that we need to open our minds to what works because what's currently working is so narrow and limited Mm -hmm. and everyone Mm -hmm. is so different. So you might find one neurodivergent person that really, really opens up and thrives by going for a walk in therapy. And you might find one neurodivergent person that like me, I really like telehealth. I've just been in heaven since COVID happened because I love nothing more 
than not having to leave my house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have to deal with traffic, noise, smells, anything. And I can be very comfortable in whatever I want to wear, which to be fair, I wear out anyway. But, <laughs> you know, I, I have that level of control over my environment. So I think it's more just like let's open our minds to other ways to do therapy because it's so limiting as it currently is. That's really important that you pointed that out because um, I'm like saying, do this, do that without the kind of... Which it's, I do love these recommendations, by the way. <laughs> I will caveat. They're great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The context, so I actually have fallen trapped to this when it's like, this person's autistic? Do this. Don't make eye contact, you know? Yeah. And it's like people just applying this like, okay, what do I do? Oh, I do this strategy, do this. And it's like what you need, like the the main thing is the unmasking and working with that person and like you need to like map their brain yes so and once you do that and you see the world from their view even though that might be very different yeah even if you're autistic right as well then you can start operating within their system of coherence like you know that internal coherence thing yeah because if you say something that conflicts with that it's not going to kind of reach them and that might not be verbal (laughs) it might be yeah absolutely uh through movement or something so yeah yeah and also I think another thing to point out in like this scenario and I I sort of think about this in all healthcare not just therapy is you know it'd be so nice to just have a level of understanding throughout medical professionals and health professionals that they knew that there's this basic framework of our traits and there's this whole handful of tools that you can use and it would be so good if we get to a point where therapists can like offer options because I mean most autistic people I still come into this you know I've been in therapy for so long and multiple therapies too like occupational therapy I don't know what my options are until someone points them out or I research. And that's why I research a lot because I don't usually know what to do. And the good therapists I see in all areas are the ones that are like, you know, I see that maybe you're not liking this as much or, you you, you know, anything. Just like, mm, is this working for you? Maybe we could try A, B or C and then let me choose, which is the whole, I I think, to be honest, this is my my demand avoidance talking because if I feel empowered and if I feel like I have a choice and if I feel like I'm not limited to whatever one way that it works, then it's not me having to go, I don't like this because generally I will just Mm -hmm. do it and suffer or avoid and not come back (laughs) instead of ever being like, oh, I don't like, I mean, I'm different now with my therapist because I trust them so much, but it's still hard. Um, and it would be so good if, if therapists could say, we could do telehealth or we could go for a walk while we do our therapy or you're welcome to bring your knitting or just throw some ideas out there and let the client or patient tell you what suits them or experiment together and build that trust using that as a tool. Yes. Oh. So what you're describing, that's that. Remember that, that reparenting thing I was talking about before? Yes, exactly. That's what you need in because in, like when your whole experience is one of things not working for you and not having a choice, it's like, well, you need to have this choice control. That's like a basic human need. It's not agreed. PDA. Yeah, thank you. It's that makes you feel better. <laughs> not PDA. I'm going to put that shot. Not PDA. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's exactly right. Like if like, there's no just one strategy, maybe I shouldn't even recommend strategies, but then again, it's good to have options. No, no, no. I think the strategies are good. And I don't mean to be picking them apart because I do like your strategies. I guess it's more 
I'm thinking from a perspective of if I was listening to this back a few years ago when I was fresh on the scene of neurodivergence, you know, I'm a very literal thinker. I still am. And it's my nap brain. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being a literal thinker. But I think where it can come to a point where it's not so helpful is that when we try and learn these things and we become aware of them, we, we feel we're still getting pigeonholed and it's still rigid thinking and for me I guess it's I'm just continuously trying and my therapist sort Mm -hmm. of helped me do this to keep being open-minded and flexible in my thinking so you know you know for, for example if you were listening to a podcast that said go to the shops and make sure you always take a coin to use the trolley because that will make your experience better then and and this is really stereotyping, but I'd go to the shops and use the trolley, even though I only needed to maybe get like two things that would have easily not even needed a bag. I really struggled with this personally in the first few years of having chronic illness and health issues is that I would listen to my health providers and I would do exactly what I was told sometimes and it wouldn't work. And instead of going back and saying it didn't work, I would either not go back or I would go back and pretend I did it and didn't. <laughs> which is not helpful. Um, But, you know, I was, that's a whole nother story. So I guess for me, I'm just thinking, I'm always thinking about younger Annie who really needed help in navigating this very complex area. And for me, it's like, these are suggestions that go beyond what currently exists or is offered mostly. Mm. But at the same time, you can be flexible within those Mm -hmm. still. Let's just let that be the, the the main suggestion, right? Like flexibility. Yeah. But I love it. I love that I'm like, hey, exactly. here's this thing. And you're like, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> this is how I'm interpreting it. And that's exactly what I like. What 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 just happened? That. Yeah. That is like what I would recommend. Yeah. Obviously, that's 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 the self-advocacy. Yes. And I don't know if this is I wrote being be annoying until your needs are met. Like it's like yes, who I like that. Cares if you're annoying. I Just, love that. I love how direct it is. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, you should use all these titles. They're so good. No, but at the same time, we've been annoying, right? We've we've been told we're annoying uh-huh. our whole lives, or whatever. Insert ableist term here: lazy, stubborn sensitive whatever so it's really hard I think for us to stand up for our needs and to push back so I think that even makes us more vulnerable to things like behaviorism and ABA because we're already in a state of I suppose fawn at the extreme yeah yeah so I agree push back push back So something I've been thinking about a lot recently, like with the with the boundary stuff, and I know we were talking about this the other day. I see a lot of stuff out there about boundaries, like just you know, this is how you set a boundary. But it's like this, it's not just about like knowing how to do it. It's about you need to like believe that you have that right. And I agree. For people who have repeatedly like I guess gaslighted unintentionally, you really don't. Yes, that's something you have to work through first. That's something that I'm doing at the moment. Yep. So don't feel bad if you can't set a boundary. Oh, that's profound. It just means that that's just hard for you right now, you know, and CPTSD, I think it is more, you know, more common in neurodivergent people. And that's exactly what happens when you, when you're traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of little T traumas. Yeah. They add up. I think that's so true. And I mean, I feel like we're on this exact same page in thinking that because I think that, you know, that's really it is that you've really got to learn that you, you're a valuable person. Mm. 
and that you're worthy of everything everyone's worthy of and I I try I've I've put a lot of thought into why we even have like we are that way and obviously you know like you said the gaslighting and all the little tea traumas and such and the negative feedback it all adds up but you know at the same time trying to put that in like a practical term for someone who's listening it can be as simple as from primary school continually being called up by the teacher to pay attention or I spent a lot of primary school sitting in the shaded part at recess because I'd forget my hat so often and no one ever helped me with it and I felt like I was being punished because I couldn't hang out with my friends at recess but I equally couldn't remember my hat and I just beat myself up about it every single time why couldn't a teacher have been like she really struggles with her hat a lot maybe we should keep a spare for her Mm. (laughs) like it's just it's all these tiny little things that on their own or occurring once or twice no big deal. Everyone forgets their hat. Everyone has to sit out for recess. But if it's happening so often that it's actually really affecting you emotionally, that's when I think alarm bells. <laughs> and for me, like what I'm saying is like alarm bells, meaning maybe look at a diagnosis because the diagnosis or even self-diagnosis, self-identification, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. all that enables you to do is understand yourself or your child better mm-hmm. and to give them the tools that means that they don't have to live in this constant state of shame cycles and embarrassment cycles that we've had to live because we lived most of our lives undiagnosed yes yeah well said thank you well said i still forget my hat (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i i can relate to all of that i think a lot of it is maybe even stuff you don't remember because it doesn't it's like not judged to be significant in a general sense oh that's that's powerful too absolutely I don't know if if I was talking to you about this thing but like even even that whole it it can be really innocent somebody just somebody making an assumption about how you're feeling and that makes you question like for example if someone says to me oh why are you upset you know I'm not upset I'm thinking about PDA and the theory behind it you know Oh my gosh, this happens to me a lot too. And I'm just like concentrating and it's usually like a partner or a friend like, are you okay? And then I go, am I? Am I? (laughs) And then you think back to all the bad things that have happened and it's like, oh, it's just like it gives you a lack of trust in your own internal sense. Absolutely. And what you're projecting to the world because sometimes I think we think that we look a certain way and it's getting interpreted wrong. I remember um, one of my first jobs as a, a grad, I was literally sitting in a cubicle in the hallway so I had constant people walking past me while I looked at my computer screen and I have severe resting bitch face Uh, when I am concentrating I look angry almost (laughs) and like to the point where even my husband the other day I was listening to a really interesting podcast and I was staring off across the room at him on his at his desk and he kept being like are you okay I'm like shut up I'm concentrating (laughs) like yes I'm fine but you know, it's it's that sort of thing where people would stop and be like, oh, are you okay? And I'm just like, oh, my God, what is, what is on my face? Like, am I okay? Oh, but also they actually don't want to know, are you okay? Most people ask that because they want to quit. Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. Mm. There's, there's that social nicety of do you truly actually care? And then I actually have to figure out what I feel. Like, mm. I don't know. It's complicated. But also uh, in saying that, another thing that that brings to mind, re being misinterpreted. For me, I don't know if you could relate to this, but mm-hmm. I've had a lot of experience experiences in my life where I came across differently than I intended. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I went to boarding school after that six-month all-girls school stint to a co-ed boarding school because I was that desperate to get away from all girls. (laughs) 
I have a lot of female friends now, people. I do. I love females. Like, oh my God, don't, don't hate me for it. Love the females. Not too much. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I was very homesick and shy and I had to eat my meals in this big dining hall with all the people that I lived with, all the girls. And I didn't have a lot in common with them because we're from very different parts of Australia and very different interests. And I do what I do in most of my new schools. I did eight schools as an army brat is you sort of spend the first few weeks or months observing and learning the lay of the lands. And then you come out of your shell and can, you know, mask enough that you're accepted, whatever. <laughs> but in this period, um, I thought I was just being a bit shy friendly but shy sure introvert or whatever and I had one of the girls come up to me a few months into being this and said everyone thinks you're stuck up and that you think you're better than us I was like what I do not think that if anything I'm horrified that you're all going to think I'm a weirdo and not be my friend yeah that is just the worst when you're like just doing what you kind of need to do to function to be accepted and then it like works against you yeah and then equally it happened in the complete reverse I started my grad program after uni and one girl that I'm very good friends with now we're really close I was very happy bubbly friendly like gregarious I was like no one's gonna think I'm stuck up no one's gonna think I think I'm better than them I'm so friendly (laughs) and then Like a month into the program, she said, when we started to become proper friends, she said, oh, I really thought you were like a queen bee when we first met. (laughs) I'm like, what? (laughs) Because I was trying to be friendly and nice. Like it just never comes out the way I intend. So I'm like, why bother? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So bad. Yeah. It's like neutral is not an option. You just can't. Exactly. I I struggle with this so much in workplaces because like when I'm working – it's like all I've got mm-hmm. and I can't really do the social too. But then I know that it's like appropriate to interact and maybe have a conversation. I'm not sure. So what I would do is like at random intervals, be social and then just like withdraw for like weeks and then be like, people must be so confused. I'm just like talking like, oh, I'm excited. And then I just like disappear. And then, oh, here I am again. I love it. I can definitely relate Literally, to there's a better way. <laughs> but I'll even like I'll consciously think like when was the last time I had a conversation with this person it was two weeks ago okay. <laughs> yeah yep and it's it's funny how we like we're very structured like that it's like I don't want to be rude I feel like we're so used to being in in a, like incorrectly interpreted that we have to constantly think about those things rather than it being mm-hmm. I feel I mean I'm not neurotypical but I assume that neurotypicals go about their lives and don't spend a lot of energy thinking how they come across to their colleagues and if they're putting enough Mm -hmm. effort in or too much effort or oversharing or undersharing or you know like yeah I don't know but yeah it's it's exhausting and it all adds Mm. up and it's why we get burnt out (laughs) yeah you're either an extreme people pleaser who's burnt out yes or intensely guilty there's like no in between Agreed. Or like me now, unmasked and have lost the ability to, no, I'm building on my acceptance of my autistic self. Yes. That's the way. Yes, which is so important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the third option, but it takes mm, two years waiting list on the diagnostic. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Is it really? Yeah, two some, years? Some places are two years. I was talking to a colleague <sighs> the other day, wow. runs a charity and two years where, where they live. It's not everywhere and you can ask around, but there's a significant I think the shortest time is six months, which is yeah. still significant. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And so many psychiatrists that are known to be the ones that are very good, especially with women, adult women with ADHD, have shut their books. Yeah. Like my psychiatrist shut his books 
almost immediately after I saw him three years ago and hasn't opened them. And then another friend of mine, psychiatrist, who's really well known on the coast, they've had their book shuts for at least two years as well. So all the decent ones that actually can give you accurate diagnoses are not accessible. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. it's, it's not good. This is when, I, when I'm saying like be annoying because... Yeah, be annoying, pester. Mm-hmm. Even if you can't get that like assessment booking it does actually help a lot to just explore this anyway and even if that means self-diagnosis or Mm -hmm. because like the more you learn the more you'll connect and understand yourself even without that label that document I know people want that yeah I Um, definitely agree and if you're annoying enough your psychologist might eventually go to this neuroaffirming psychologist page which I'm I spend most of my time on and find somebody to do an assessment so yeah don't just go oh it's too hard because you will come back <laughs> and be like, you know. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you want that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to put people off getting a diagnosis if they want that. No, no, agreed. And also, like, I think it's so important the advice I give people who I get a lot of private messages asking who do they go to and I don't have an answer because my guy's shut (laughs) he's closed but what I do say to people and what I've done in the past to help anyone is go on to Facebook and go to your local like whatever mums group or ADHD in your town group or whatever and just ask literally just put a post up and say hey has anyone any woman or any mum taken their daughter or whatever to someone and they could recommend and I mean that's the best way currently because I mean we do have there's a few like you were saying that website Mm -hmm. there's a couple of websites Mm -hmm. but none of them are very consistent or updated frequently I think it's that one or a similar one Um, my psychologist my psychiatrist is still on even though he's closed his books and it doesn't say he's closed his books so (laughs) I I think that's something else to be mindful of If, if you're sitting here thinking I want a diagnosis one don't get put off if you do have to wait. Keep doing the research and listening to people like us with lived experience and obviously the, the normal research too. Just don't get too caught up in the, the negativity. It's easy to do. But equally, you know, try and find the right psychologist or psychiatrist because you're wasting your money if you go to someone who does not understand ADHD and autism in women because they might not diagnose you. You know, I mean, maybe you're not, but most of the time, the lack of diagnosis is wrong. And it's purely because even though they say they work in this area, it's not their specialty. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just do some ADHD stuff on the side, but they mostly see men, whatever. I don't know why some of them are good, some of them aren't, but the grapevine exists and it's pretty easy to tap into thanks to social media. So use it. Yes. And if you're pursuing this diagnosis, you know, you're so fixated quote unquote yes on it and you're researching everything about autism like that's a pretty good sign yeah (laughs) that you're neurodivergent yeah like not anyone is just like oh my god autism oh my god yeah yeah you're one of us (laughs) yeah just just take that and that that actually really helped me when I was talking to like I had a lot of clients that were questioning yeah and I had two supervisors and one of them was like are you sure like maybe they just watch too much tiktok and then the other one was like saying like Totally fair, by the way, because there is a concern about overdiagnosis. Although it's not, it's actually the opposite way around. Anyway, yeah, I agree. It makes yeah. me so mad that that's a thing that's not, that's out that there. does not exist. Ugh. Okay, um. no, it's still underdiagnosed. Yeah. People don't listen to anyone that says otherwise. Yeah, that's evidence based. It is. But so, and my autistic supervisor was saying, why would they question this so much? You know, if they're not. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, and that clicked for me. That helped me accept it before I kind of had somebody else validate it. So, yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. Like it makes sense. I feel like I don't actually know anyone that hasn't questioned it, to be honest. I know a lot 
of autistic and ADHD women and men and non-binary. And I don't know anyone that hasn't questioned it. Pre, post, diagnosis, doesn't matter. And I think that just reflects on the fact that the diagnostic criteria Mm. is still so limited and outdated Mm. and not reflective of the diversity that is the modern world. Yeah. And definitely look into monotropism. If anyone's interested, that really helped me. I know there's only one way of looking at it, but it kind of puts autism and ADHD kind of together for me. Yeah, no, definitely. This is really random, but I just want to say, can we accept plushies? Oh, plushies. <laughs> Cute. Plushy acceptance. I want to like start a foundation for plushy acceptance because yes. I love plushies and they are my friends. Cute. <laughs> and I love them and I don't care if it's weird. And no, I have it's GPL. not weird. It's not this weird. Is Jeep Young, yeah. Oh, that's so cute. It's a monkey for those who can't see. <laughs> I have different plushies for different reasons. It's from IKEA. Whenever I go to IKEA, which I do not recommend. Oh, it is too. I've seen it. It's like, oh my god, I feel weird. It's like clones. Like I feel like I'm in Star Wars. <laughs> like look yeah. at all the clones. I'm like Jeep Young. <laughs> Sorry, it's strange. I'm strange. I don't care. No, I love it. I love it. No, so I, I have, I have lots of teddy bears mm-hmm. that my partner's given me over the years, and I love them so much. And now I have a child, so they seem more legit. But they're totally still mine. <laughs> and like, I mean, I'm pretty sure my son's neurodivergent, considering his parents are. Mm-hmm. But he's so cute. He will literally like lie down on the soft teddy bear. I think he really likes the feel. Like, I'm like, oh, he's stimming cute. Mm-hmm. Yes, hopefully. Hopefully they're in the neurodivergent. I know. Well, actually, my husband said prepare yourself because he might not be. And I was like, oh, no, what do I do? Mm-hmm. I'll be devastated. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I won't understand him. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Well, probably true. I'm pretty confident he is. He's very much like me. Ah, good. Yes. All I want to say is autism is cool. So cool. I was listening to your first episode. Oh, uh, yeah. And you're like, if you think, well, yeah, if you think autism is cool, then you're autistic. You're autistic. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, okay. Yeah, it's the coolest. Like, just, it's the coolest. Yeah. I feel bad for people that aren't autistic. I actually do. Like, I don't understand. Like, you're missing how... out on this really cool club. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But with that, Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Joey. I have absolutely adored talking to you and I'm sure everyone will take a lot of awesome information out of this. It's been lovely to be on here. Thanks for having me. And I hope that what I've shared helps at least one person make things a little bit easier. Uh, I'm sure it will help more. Absolutely. Thanks, Joey. I hope you enjoyed our chat and can take away some helpful tips and a bit more self-acceptance. Next episode, I'm interviewing our first international guest, And I think you are going to love it. It is by far one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had in my life. And I know you're going to love her. So thanks for listening and see you next time. Also, happy Autistic Pride Day. Over and out.